feasting at the Lord's table like a royal son. That's what we're talking about tonight. Um, I really think this passage, this story, is one of the most beautiful pictures of the way the king of kings loves lame, helpless, even bitter traitors. Now, lest we think that this is a passage about what a great guy David was, because I know sometimes um, people read the Old Testament as a a book of heroes that we're to emulate. You know, there's even a, a wretched children's song that goes... Dare to be a Daniel. You know that song? Anybody ever sing that at like vacation Bible school? It's a wretched song. Even though it's in the hymnal of my denomination, it's still a wretched song. The point of the book of Daniel is not dare to be a Daniel. The point of even this story is not be like David. And one of the ways you know that is the Bathsheba incident is coming up in just a couple chapters after this. So David wasn't a wonderful guy. He was a man after God's own heart who did some really wretched things. But there were times, like this story, where he really models in a beautiful way what the true king of kings' love is really like. It's a beautiful passage. So let's look at this. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. There is a reference in 2 Samuel chapter 4 that I'll just summarize for you as we're going through this. It's just a little backstory to what happens to Mephibosheth. But we're going to pick up the story in chapter 9. Now, this is after King Saul, who had turned away from the Lord and then had tried to kill David, whom God had anointed to be his king. Saul tries to kill him. But the story here is after Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed by the Philistines. And after that, David is able to come to the throne and come to the palace, okay? And this is now picking up the story. Saul and Jonathan are dead. David has now been installed as the king of Israel. Pick up at chapter 9, verse 1. David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. 
You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let's pray, and then we're going to unpack this story. Lord, help us to, to see the beauty in this story. And even more importantly, not just to see it, but Lord, may you send your spirit to open our hearts that we might resonate with this picture of one who by all rights was a dead dog, but he was made to eat at the king's table like a royal son. Oh Lord, may we actually believe, maybe for the first time, maybe again, that we have been given such privileges in the gospel to eat at your table like royal sons and daughters. Help us to resonate with that even as we unpack this story now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we go through this, here's how we're going to break this down. First, we're going to look at who is Mephibosheth. And in looking at that, we're going to see a picture of who it is that gets saved and, and, and what the people that get saved are like. And then we're going to see the beauty of salvation by God's sheer grace. And then we're going to see a picture of the privileges the gospel brings. And then there's a fourth point we're going to add here, which we're going to look at how this story develops later in the scripture and see a powerful picture of how grace changes us. So that's where we're going. All right. So first, a picture of who it is that gets saved. Now, you have to understand a little of the cultural background. Everybody expected, and everybody did this in the ancient world. If a new king came to the throne, the first thing that you did to consolidate your power and to make sure that there wouldn't be a basis for a coup in the future was to kill all the descendants of the previous regime. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying it's what everybody did. And it's not just in the ancient world. You study the kings of, of England, the kings and queens of England. You see that kind of stuff happen all the time. One of the things that everybody expected David to do is to wipe out all of those who were from the house of Saul. Because the house of Saul had tried to kill David, and there might be people that were still loyal to Saul who could then use this son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul, to put him forward to overthrow David's kingdom, right? So the way to think about Mephibosheth is he is the enemy. His name actually means a shameful thing. That's what his name means, a shameful thing. And notice how over and over again he's described as being from the house of Saul. So the narrator wants to make sure you get the point. This guy is from the house of Saul. Saul's the guy who was chucking spears at David. 
and then tried to pursue him and kill him in the wilderness. So he is the enemy. He's a threat, as I said, to David's kingdom as long as he's alive because he's a, a potential future rival to the throne of David. But notice also he's crippled, helpless, lame in both feet. And that gets mentioned over and over and over again in this story. It doesn't tell you here in chapter 9 how he got to be that way. But over in chapter 4, five chapters before this, you find out what happened. And here's what's happened. When news reached the palace that Jonathan and Saul had been killed by the Philistines, panic erupted in the palace. Because everybody knew that now that Saul and Jonathan are dead, David is going to come back and he is going to clean house and he is going to take the throne. So we better get the heck out of Dodge. So Mephibosheth at this point is a young boy. His nurse picks him up and in the chaos, trying to run out the door, drops the poor kid and he's thus crippled in both feet for the rest of his life. So not only is he the enemy, not only is he a potential threat and rival to David's kingdom, he basically is a victim of the sin of his grandfather. The fleeing, the fall, the permanent disability, the end of his future as the royal heir, all of this happened to him while he was still too young to even understand it. And, and I want to make this point. So often, people that have been raised in church, raised around Christians, have a much easier time thinking of themselves as sinners than they do sinned against. But the Bible wants you to understand that after the fall, both of those are true of everybody in this room. That you are both someone who has been sinned against, somebody who is bruised and broken by the fall, like that song that we just sang, right? It's come ye sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore. And, and for a lot of us, you know, we're so kind of consumed by shame that we resonate with, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. But sometimes it's hard for us to say, I'm weak and wounded, I'm sick, I'm sore. But Jesus, of course, says he came not for those who are well, but he came for those who need a doctor. And that's part of the biblical picture of the condition of mankind, right? Not only that, he's a fugitive. He fled when David became king, and he's been in hiding ever since. Here's the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He was the only living heir of the once great house of Saul, but nobody knew it because he's hiding he lives in Lodabar. Do you know what Lodabar means? Lodabar means the place of no pasture. And elsewhere in the scripture, it says that the wicked are like a raging sea with no rest. That's the picture you're to have here. He's in hiding. His name means a shameful thing. He's in hiding in Lodabar, the place of no pasture. Jerusalem is the place where God's people live with him, but Mephibosheth doesn't live there. And I don't think it takes too much speculation to think that he's probably bitter towards David. Imagine that the people hiding him 
are loyal to Saul, and he's probably heard stories about what could have been, what should have been, right? He's a crippled man with royal blood in his veins, and when he thinks about David, I'm sure he thinks that guy is the reason I'm crippled, the reason I'm not the king. You can't help but see here a picture of the desperate condition of mankind before God. And it's important if we would understand what the Bible has to say about grace that we understand what it has to say about mankind's condition before God. Two contrasting views of humanity here. The first by John Bunyan. It's a strong quote. He's the one who wrote A Pilgrim's Progress, right? One of the most popular Christian books of all time. He said this, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. It's worse than we think. Hobart Maurer, professor of psychology at Harvard, former president of the American Psychological Association, wrestling with this idea of sin and whether or not it was an outdated concept. I mean, after all, John Bunyan lived in the 17th century. Haven't we evolved to the point where we don't believe those old-fashioned oppressive ideas anymore? Here's what he wrote. For several decades, we psychologists have looked on the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus. You know what an incubus is? It's like a mythological creature that steals and eats little babies. So it's, that's a bad thing. We've looked upon the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and declared our liberation from it, in other words, liberation from this old-fashioned idea of sin, as epic-making. But at length we discovered that to be free in this sense, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to also court the danger of becoming lost. For in becoming a moral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut off the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? Do you understand what he's saying? In other words, you may not like the idea of sin, but if you throw away the idea of sin, you lose the sense of who you are because you cut yourself up from, off from God and his ability to say who you are and what you were made for. And while it may seem like ultimate liberation and freedom to break free of that relationship, you find that you're out here kind of floating in midair. We talk a lot about authenticity, but do you understand that to be authentic is always in reference to something? And what Christianity proclaims is that you were made in the image of God. You were made to be somebody and to be a particular way. And to cut yourself off from God is to court this kind of sense of losing even who you are. We may think that the idea of God as a judge is a horrible, outdated idea, but the idea that God as a judge is what provides meaning for all of life. And you're not big enough to provide it for yourself. You're not big enough to provide it for yourself. You know, I heard Tim Keller tell this illustration one time. You know, when you're in college or maybe high school as well, a lot of times you end up like taking jobs that are way below your skills and gifts. 
It's really boring, right? But you know what it's like to go to work every day and know that you can't possibly do the job? That's like hell on earth. Thinking that you have to establish your own meaning is taking on something you were never made for, right? So it's so important that you understand what does it mean to be human. You have to have an adequate diagnosis to be healed, and God tells us who we are, gives us this picture here because of his great love. But then we want to see how does this story show us the beauty of salvation by God's sheer grace. Let's look at this. Notice the Lord is the one who initiates just as David initiates here. I love this by A.W. Pink. He says this, did David send a message of welcome, inviting him to come to Jerusalem? Did he notify Mephibosheth that if he, quote, did his part, mercy would be given to him? Did he forward the cripple a pair of crutches and bid him make use of them and hobble to Jerusalem as best he could? No, indeed. King David had him brought from Lodabar. Thank God for bringing grace. God has him brought. David has him brought. Thank God for bringing grace. Mephibosheth is living in Lodabar, this place of no rest, but he doesn't want to leave. David has him brought and loves him. And why does David do this? The text is very clear. David takes this initiative because of his love for another. He doesn't know Mephibosheth. He doesn't even know Mephibosheth exists. But when he finds out that Jonathan has a son, the text says, because of his love for Jonathan, he wants to show grace to Mephibosheth. In other words, Mephibosheth is safe because of David's love for Jonathan. This is what Christian theology describes as having a covenant mediator. In other words, we are loved for Christ's sake. Mephibosheth is loved for something done before he was even born. David's love for the sake of Jonathan and the covenant that Jonathan and David had made for one another. Again, A.W. Pink puts it this way, the one here who obtained kindness at the hands of the king received favor not because of anything he had done, nor because of any personal worthiness he possessed, but wholly on account of a covenant promise which had been made before he was born. So it is with those toward whom God now acts in free and sovereign grace. In other words, the picture you see here is God's love is a love for helpless enemies. The gospel is the great surprise ending. It is. There's a, a famous Welsh preacher named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, passed away now, but he preached an entire sermon simply on the word but. From Ephesians chapter 2, we were by nature objects of wrath, dead in our sons and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. The whole of the gospel is contained in that word, but. And that's the picture you see here. 
the mercy of the king for helpless traitors. And the word translated here, kindness. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is an important Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. Hesed sometimes is translated steadfast love. What it really means is covenant faithfulness. And that's what David's saying. Is there anybody left in the enemy camp that I can love because of covenant faithfulness, because of hesed? It's a beautiful picture. Now let's look as well at the picture of the privileges that the gospel brings. What does Mephibosheth get from David, from the king? The first is he gets peace. I love, put yourself in the scene. David has him brought. He stands before the king. Mephibosheth bows, expecting to hear off with his head. It's, I've been discovered. This is it. David says, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth says, your servant. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. The king knows what Mephibosheth must be feeling, must be thinking, and he stoops down in this wonderful, empathetic picture and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he says, for I will surely show you kindness, hesed, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Do you know whenever the Bible uses that word surely, do you know what that is? That's the way that you swear an oath in Hebrew. I will surely do it. You can depend on it. I swear that I will show you kindness. You know, the king doesn't need to swear an oath. The book of Hebrews has this amazing place I think it's in chapter 6, where it basically says, you know, God swore an oath to Abraham. But here's the thing. The reason we swear an oath is because we're liars and we're unreliable. And so as best we can, we try to kind of use shame and guilt to get people to keep their word. So we make them swear an oath or swear on the Bible or do something because we're inherently unreliable and duplicitous. God is not like that. So God has no need to swear an oath so that you can be sure that he won't lie or change his mind. God clearly says in Numbers, I am not a man that I should lie or change my mind. So why does God swear an oath? And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. God swore an oath to Abraham so that the heirs of salvation would be abundantly sure of what he's promised. So God doesn't want to just save his people. He wants them to be abundantly sure. He wants you to feel it in the very depths of your soul. So he goes beyond what's needed, and he swears an oath and says, don't be afraid. So he gets peace. He also gets called by name, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Salvation is intimate and personal. And then he gets a place at the table. If you take one thing away from this message tonight, take this. This is the gospel, that the king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his table like royal sons and daughters. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. 
The king loves in a lavish way that to everybody else seems crazy. David, making the grandson of his enemy Saul, like his royal son, trusted, eating at his table forever, seems insane to everybody sitting there in that court that day. What are you doing? What are you doing, David? And not only does he provide for him and tell you, you can eat at my table forever, he goes beyond that and he gives him all of the inheritance, all of the lands, and the servants to work the lands to bring in the crops. But here's the thing, guys. He doesn't eat any of that. The king's table is more than enough. He's going to eat at the king's table forever, and yet he still gets blessings lavished upon blessings. That's a picture of God giving him more than he needs. He doesn't just give him bread and water. He doesn't just spare his life. He says, you can eat at the king's table like a royal son forever. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to make you fabulously wealthy, even though you deserve to be dead. And Mephibosheth gets that, right? He says, who am I that you would notice a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth understands how crazy this is, right? I love this line from Isaac Watts from one of his hymns talking about how in the gospel we get more blessings than what Adam lost. Do you know that? That we are in a better place in Christ than we would have been if Adam had never sinned. Theologians call this the doctrine of the fortunate fall. I know it's kind of a strange name, but here's the way Isaac Watts in his great hymn um, puts it. Where he, meaning Jesus, displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, they would have represented us and we would have had the righteousness of a perfect human being. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? We have more blessings in Christ than we would have had if Adam had never sinned. That's what he gets. He gets the inheritance the family had lost and more than he needs. And he's made like a royal son. See, here's the thing. A lot of people think that the heart of the gospel is that God's enemies are made into his friends. That's only part of it. You know what's even better than that? In the gospel, God's enemies are made into his adopted sons and daughters. And actually, Paul says that in Galatians, that God, uh, in, when the time had fully come, Christ was born so that he might redeem us, so that we might become the sons of God. And the way those purpose clauses work is the ultimate apex of salvation is not being redeemed having your sin redeemed or cleansed, but being made like a royal son, 
and a royal daughter. J.I. Packer, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, puts it this way, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. When you think of who you are in Christ, do you think of yourself as safe from hell? Do you think of yourself as God's little worker bee? Or do you think of yourself as a son who gets to lavish in God's love? Because that's the true understanding of what Christianity is all about. But we get to see one more thing in this picture. And for this, we actually have to see the next part of this story. If you want to look at 2 Samuel 19, I believe I stuck this on the the paper. So if you have a paper, it's down at the bottom. But if you have a Bible, look at 2 Samuel 19. Let me summarize it, and then I'm going to pick up reading at verse 24. So David, after he's in the throne, eventually his own son, Absalom, tries to kill David. And once again, David has to flee into the wilderness. At one point, David comes close to Jerusalem, and Ziba comes out to meet David in the wilderness and bring him some food and supplies. But Mephibosheth doesn't come with him. David asks, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, basically, Mephibosheth is stayed back at the palace. He's hoping that you're going to die so that he can become king. That's what Ziba tells David while David is on the run from his son, Absalom. Okay? David doesn't take sides at this point, but blesses them both. And then when when Absalom is killed, David returns to the palace. And we'll pick up the story here at verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king, that's David, asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, my lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled, and I will ride on it so I can go with the king, but Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant, that means he slandered me, to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you, David. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? And the king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him, let Ziba take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Now, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. 
Mephibosheth sure looks like he's been in mourning ever since David left, right? But maybe it is a hoax. How can you tell who's telling the truth? How can David tell who's telling the truth? David actually doesn't take sides. He divides the fields. But I think the last verse is very telling. Mephibosheth says, I don't care about the lands. I don't care about the stuff. All that I care about is that my king, my true love, has returned. Do you understand? He's been dwelling on this reality that I deserve nothing but death. But I was given this unbelievable blessing to eat at the seat at the king's table. And the more he dwells on that, the more it melts his heart, the more he becomes enamored and only wants the glory of the king to be restored. He doesn't want the stuff. It's like, I don't need the stuff. As long as the king is back, the king is safe, I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what happens to me. I don't need the stuff. Do you see that picture? How does that transformation happen? The key is in the text. He never gets over the mercy he received. It never becomes ho-hum to him. What this means is you need the gospel not just to come to Christ, but you need the gospel every day to remind you of how glorious his grace is and how undeserving of it we are. Because only the, as you sit in that and it begins to melt your heart, does your heart begin to be conformed to long for the glory of God and his kingdom over all things. You see, his heart has been turned towards the king for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's what matters to him. The king, the king and his beauty. You know, um, you probably heard of this guy, General George Custer, right? You heard about the massacre at Little Bighorn, and there's a lot more to that story that needs to be told, but I want to tell you about something you may not know, and it's about his wife, Libby. Libby um, was George Custer's wife, and he adored her. It caused him to actually do some, some reckless things. There was one point where he basically missed her and decided that he just had to go back and see her, so he gathered his men made them march for 55 hours so that he could show up and surprise Libby. It, it was completely reckless. It killed two of his men, okay? Did. Killed several of the horses because of the strain of the journey. Put his whole military career at risk. In fact, he was court-martialed and stripped of his rank and pay for a year. The reason that he actually went out and fought the Battle of Little Bighorn, in which he and his men were slaughtered, was because he was trying to do something bold to get back in the good graces of the army. He risked everything to see his wife. It was the craziest thing he ever did. But Libby wrote in her journal this, for me, there was one perfect day. 
The king loves in a lavish way that seems crazy. Right? David making the grandson of his enemy Saul like his royal son seems insane to everyone. But it changed Mephibosheth forever. Right? That's what the gospel is supposed to do. So, all of us traitors, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus wants to make you like a royal son to eat at his table forever. That's the gospel. It really does seem too good to be true. If it doesn't seem too good to be true, it's not the gospel. Let's pray.